This is the word of the Lord from Leviticus 24, verses 16 through 22. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether the resident alien or the native. If a man kills anyone, he must be put to death. Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, life for life. If any man inflicts a permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done is to be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, but whoever kills a person is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the resident alien and the native, because I am the Lord your God. Thanks, John. Good morning, church. How are you guys doing? Good? If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors. And between Tim's deep, booming singing voice and John's professional radio voice, I've never felt so insecure about my own voice. Also, John told me, I just read the scripture, John just told me in between the two worship gatherings that after that crazy Mariners playoff win yesterday, he dreamed that he was doing the scripture reading at T-Mobile Park. And so... I don't know if they have a scripture reader lined up for the playoff game that will be hosted here next Saturday night, but let's see who we have to email and get your name on the list. Okay, here's where we're at today in the book of Leviticus. We love going through books of the Bible. We love seeing what God has for us in his word. Um, the next chunk of Leviticus, if we were just going to keep going chronologically, is all about the festivals and all about the feasts, the various holidays that the people of Israel celebrated. But uh, in the middle of it is this little story about someone who commits the sin of blasphemy. And so uh, recently I was hanging out with my good friend, Rabbi Matt Rosenberg. He's a Messianic rabbi, loves Jesus a ton, or as he's going to say next week, Yeshua. And come to find out that this week actually is the beginning of the festival of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths. And next Sunday is the eighth and greatest day of the feast. And so Matt is actually preaching on this festival from Leviticus at his church, at their synagogue next Saturday, and so I've invited him to come and preach on all the festivals, but specifically on Sukkot next week, so you guys are going to get to hear a a really cool message of how the Feast of Booths, Sukkot, uh, ties to the ministry and the work of Jesus, and meanwhile, I get to deal with the delightful topic of blasphemy. So make sure you're here next week for uh, this message from Rabbi Matt. And in the meanwhile, will you pray with me and pray for me as we dive into this subject? Lord, Lord, we thank you for your words that are life. We thank you for your word that spoke all things into creation. We thank you for the words of grace and truth that Jesus has spoken to us Lord, I pray for my own words. I pray that you would guide my speech and guard my words, that I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And Lord, as we leave this place, would you help us to use our words to give you praise, to build others up, and to proclaim the message of the gospel. So we give this time to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right, I have a question for you, a couple of questions. Who said it? I'm going to say a phrase. Something that you probably would know. Who do you think said this phrase? Okay, ready? Start with an easy one. What's in a name? Shakespeare, yep. 
Bill Shakespeare. Yep, good. Uh, okay, this one's a little bit localized to Seattle. Who said this? Don't you ever talk about me. Sherman. Richard Sherman, yes. Uh, at the first worship gathering, there was a guy who just said, my mother. And I said, <laughs> okay. Must have been interesting growing up with Richard Sherman as your mother. Anyways, uh, okay, here's another one. Ready? Say my name, say my name. Destiny's Child, thank you. Yes, not just Beyonce. Whoever said Beyonce, respect the names of all three of those ladies who did it, okay? Uh, Here's another one. I had to edit this one for content. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. Who said that? Will Smith, yes, the fresh prince of grievances. Um, Put some respect on my name. Some rapper I'd never heard of, actually, is the guy who said that. But it's kind of worked its way into the, you know, the vernacular things that we say. I put some respect on my name. And you think about that phrase. People say that. I hear people say that. It's a weird thing to say. Why are you putting respect on my name? Why, do, why would we say that? Why don't you just say, respect me? What is the deal with the name? And, and, and why is it that we want to respect the name? Now, here in Leviticus, in chapter 24, we are encountering one of only two stories. There's only two narratives in the entire book of Leviticus, and this is one of them. The first story was right after they instituted temple or tabernacle worship. They got the tabernacle set up. They started the sacrifices. There were two men, two of the sons of Aaron, uh, Nadab and Abihu, who did not follow God's rules, God's laws for how temple worship, tabernacle worship was to happen. And they lost their lives as a result of it. Now here, God's holiness has gone out from the tabernacle and God says, I want my people to live lives that are holy from top to bottom. And here is a story of a, a young man Uh, using his words to blaspheme the name of God, and also, as a result, he loses his life. So let's dive in to this story. we got a lot to get through. Let's just jump right in. Verse 10 of chapter 24 says, Now, the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father was among the Israelites. A couple interesting things right out of the gate. So where were the Israelites enslaved prior to this? In Egypt. So someone had met an Egyptian man while living there, had gotten married. They had left with the people of Israel. Uh, This Egyptian man, by I mean, we would kind of assume, had joined up with the people of Israel, had joined up with the people of God, which could be done. Uh, But some of the translations, instead of saying was among, it actually will say went out among and many scholars kind of think that this is like a maybe wrong neighborhood sort of a part, that he was, he was dealing with some prejudice, racial or ethnic prejudice, because he didn't belong in whatever neighborhood that he went to. And some sort of fight broke out in the camp between this Israelite woman's son and an, a, a different Israelite man. Now, in the process of the fight, this son cursed and blasphemed the name. So they brought him to Moses. By the way, his mother's name was Shelomith, daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. So they put him in custody until the Lord's decision could be made clear to them. You know, we've never dealt with this before. This is, this is one of those kind of new sort of situations. The Lord had given a commandment um, at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother. And we've previously heard in Leviticus not to curse your father and mother, but what about someone who is so brash, so brazen as to curse and blaspheme the name? 
So then the Lord spoke to Moses, here's what you're going to do. Bring the one who has cursed to the outside of the camp and have all who heard him, those who were witnesses, put their hands on his head. We're witnesses. We saw this happen. And have the whole community throw rocks at him until he's dead. And tell the Israelites, if anyone curses God, he will bear the consequences of his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death. Doesn't matter if he's a resident alien, someone who moved in and joined up with Israel, or a native born. Now remember those two verbs, curse and blaspheme. We're going to come back to these in a minute here. So this sparks now a series of rulings that are given to help people decide what is the right consequence for certain actions. It goes on, verse 17. If a man kills anyone, he must be put to death. You've taken a life, you have forfeited your life. But it's different when animals, whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it life for life. If you accidentally killed someone's ox, you just need to replace uh, their oxen for them. If any man inflicts a permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done to him is, whatever he has done is to be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You've probably heard that before. Eye for an eye. This is where it comes from 3,500 years ago. The idea is that the punishment must fit the crime. And this principle still exists to this day in uh, many governments and legal uh, frameworks. So the punishment must fit the crime. Animals are different than people, right? Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, but whoever kills a person is to be put to death. As much as we love our, our four-footed furry friends, as much as we as followers of Jesus ought to respect and care for all life because he made all things, there is a difference between animal life and human life. Amen? Whoever kills a person is to be put to death. And then the other principle, the third one is, you are to have the same law for the resident alien or the immigrant and for the native because I am the Lord, your God. Now, here's, I need to deal with this for a moment uh, because over the course of this series in Leviticus, we have bumped up against the idea of capital punishment a number of times. And I don't want to do a sermon on capital punishment, but I do want to just say a few things. As if the cheerful subject of blasphemy wasn't already uh, enjoyable enough, let's talk about this really serious, weighty subject of capital offense. Okay? Uh, there are, by my estimation, I did, I read through and, and did some word search and did some word study. There are seven, which is fitting, seven crimes that bear the punishment of death. The first one is murder. We first see it in the Torah all the way back in Genesis chapter nine. After the flood, the Lord says, life is sacred. If anyone takes a man's life, that person has forfeited their life. They are to be put to death. The second one that we see is the sin of witchcraft. And we see this in Exodus 22. We've also seen it in Leviticus as well. The third one is that of Sabbath breaking. When the Lord gave the commandment for the Sabbath, and, and just, again, um, this is not a sermon about Sabbath, but this is one of the commandments that bears the death penalty for violation. And you and I might need to take that into consideration, the seriousness of Sabbath, this gift from the Lord, if we don't rest. Number four, idolatry, the worship of a false god. 
giving honor and praise to some deity that is not the one true creator of heaven and earth. Uh, There is the death penalty for cursing your parents. Cursing your parents. Also, again, tied back to the Ten Commandments of honoring your father and mother, but in Leviticus 20, cursing your parents would result in the death penalty. Number six is sexual immorality, and there's kind of a wide variety of different um, sexual misbehaviors that could result in the loss of life. And then lastly, number seven, what we've just seen here today, which is blasphemy. Now, the logic underneath these, the logic underneath these all have to do with life. So in, some, in the case of murder, I think we could all see, yes, I took someone else's life. I took that which was not mine to take. I now forfeit my life. There's a logic to that, is right? right? It's, it's, a, it's a pretty direct correlation. But what about some of these other things? Well, witchcraft and idolatry, along with blasphemy, are all, well, witchcraft and idolatry in particular, are seeking spiritual power apart from the one who is the source of life. God created all things, did he not? God made all things. He is the one that gives us life. So to go worship an idol or to go seek a a, a medium or a spiritist for uh, a spirit who's passed on is to seek life from those who don't have the power of life. Cursing your parents. Did your mom ever say to you, I brought you into this world and I can take you out kind of a thing, right? Right? The idea of your father and your mother at the human level, they're the ones that brought you life. And sexual immorality, sex is this powerful thing that God created to bring new lives into the world. It's all about life. And Sabbath breaking, the Lord giving us this day of rest. You're not a slave in Egypt anymore. Rest, receive, delight, take in peace, my shalom into you. And to break the Sabbath is to say, no, thank you, Lord. I will provide life for myself. I'm just going to keep working. And blasphemy is on the same continuum because, again, how did God create all things? By what? What means? His word. So to use our words to blaspheme the one who created all things is one of these capital Offenses. Now, broadening out capital punishment in the scripture, three things I want to say about it briefly. It's, it's both assumed and allowable. Really throughout the entire Torah, actually really throughout the entire Bible, but in particular, Romans chapter 13, even in the New Testament, the apostle Paul says, look, the government bears a sword. What is a sword? It's an instrument of violence, an instrument of death. And Paul says, the government bears that responsibility to protect the innocent and to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. It's a fear, it literally is a fear, a tool of fear to keep people in line to not harm those who are innocent. But it's also, throughout the Bible, very clear that the institutional government uh, uh, action of capital punishment is very, very different from personal vengeance. Over and over again in the scriptures, we are told that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so to whatever extent the state might have the right to use capital punishment as a tool, you and I do not, as individuals, have the right to take matters into our own hands as vigilantes or practicing personal justice. Third thing that I want to say on this is really important to remember is that today is not theocratic Israel. 
We do not live under the direct rule and reign of God the way that these ancient Israelites did here in the book of Leviticus. In fact, when the people were taken into exile, like in the book of Daniel and the prophet Jeremiah, they had to ask all sorts of questions. Well, now what do we do? We don't live in Israel anymore. How do we, how do we live as exiles? How do we live as sojourners? How do I sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And friends, the, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter, he calls us the same thing. We are strangers and we are exiles. This world in its present form is not our home. Amen? And so there may be things in the book of Leviticus that applied directly to the people of Israel, but we must be careful not to just copy, paste, and say, boom, this is how it's to be done in our society. We must exercise wisdom. We have to think through the lens of being sojourners and exiles. Because if we just want to say, well, Leviticus approves capital punishment, therefore capital punishment is automatically good. Well, what about those governments and what about those states that use it in a really wicked way? Hopefully I'm not being controversial or something when I say, are you aware of what is going on in Iran right now? Are you reading the reports that are coming out of Iran and the the government violence that's being used against people for minor infractions? This This is not a government using the tool of capital punishment in a way that promotes life and devotion to the one true God. And you might say, well, Aaron, listen, the United States is very different from Iran. Fair enough. But has the United States ever used capital punishment wrongly? I think so. It's an incredibly powerful tool, and it should be at very best, at its very best, a tragic necessity on sometimes, and at its worst, can be a really bad misuse of authority. Here's all the rest that I want to say about this, and then you can email my wife after the service uh, with any complaints. Followers of Jesus who love the scriptures can disagree in good faith about the role of capital punishment in today's society. There are people who maybe would say, yeah, it's a, it's a legitimate tool of the state when you exercise properly. There might be some who would say, it is such a powerful weapon, I don't trust anybody in authority to use it properly and rightly. But let's remember, we can disagree in good faith on these kind of secondary matters as long as we keep Jesus as king. Okay, that, I needed to say something I'm done. That's it. Let's go back to blasphemy. Okay. Uh, Boy, do we know how to have fun here at Sound City Bible Church. Okay. Blaspheming the name. Let's talk about names. In the ancient world, names were, were highly important. I would say even far more important than they are to us. In our culture, when most people pick out names for their kids, they, they are thinking of just what sounds nice or what do I like the sound of. Some of you maybe picked out names that you have a family member or something like that, but very few of us attach the, the meaning that the ancient world did to names. Names were indicative of character. When you name somebody something, it's like, this is what they're going to act like. This is what they're going to be. This is their role. And somebody's name is tied to their reputation. That's, that's even similar to how we would say today, you know, put some respect on my name. This is about your reputation, what people thought about you. But what's really interesting is the authors of the scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, often used names as kind of a literary device to help tell the story. There's things that we don't see in our English translations that I wish we could see more easily in our Hebrew translation. Let's go back to our story today because you may have noticed there was a list of names brought up in verse 11. It says this. It says, the son cursed and blasphemed the name and they brought him to Moses 
parentheses. Now, his mother's name was Shelomith, a daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. Notice a few things. The young man who committed the offense is never named. We don't know his name. We know his mom's name and his grandpa's name. We know the name of his great far-off ancestor, Dan. Why do we not know his name? Because the penalty for blasphemy was to be cut off from your people. And why is his mom's name mentioned? Well, Shalomith is related to the Hebrew word shalom. It means one who brings peace. But her offspring didn't bring peace. And what about grandpa? Grandpa Debri. The, the word Debri is re- related to the Hebrew word Debar, which means a word. And Debri is a speaker, a public speaker. He's an orator. Of the tribe of Dan, which what does Dan mean? It means God will judge. There's a, a scholar named Mary Douglas, and between her work and some of my own kind of creativity, this is maybe how it would resonate with someone who was reading it in the native language of Hebrew. Here's my attempt at doing this with with apologies and credit to Mary Douglas. says this, the blasphemer, whose name we won't even mention, was the son of a woman named Mishalom. The blasphemer's grandpa, one who speaks, was from the tribe of God will judge. All those names have all this meaning and all this resonance that we don't necessarily see when we're just reading it in our English translations. So people's names are important. God's name is of ultimate importance. All of those things about about the name, they also apply to God. You may remember that God's name was revealed in Exodus chapter 3 at Mount Sinai. Moses is tending sheep. He sees this tree that's on fire, but it's not burning up. He goes, that's strange. That doesn't happen every day. He walks over to it, and the tree starts talking to him. And he goes, now that really doesn't happen every day. And he has this conversation with the Lord, and the Lord says, I'm going to use you to set my people free, and you're going to go tell them that that I sent you. And Moses goes, yeah, one quick question. Who are you? Who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. The one who is, the one who exists, and that gets translated, transliterated into the Hebrew letters of, of yod Hey vav Hey, which is where we get our Yahweh, the proper name, the covenantal name of God. It was revealed at Sinai, and it's representative of God's own self, God's own self. In Exodus chapter 6, Moses is once again talking with God, and God says, you know, I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I revealed myself to your ancestors, but they only knew me as God the Almighty, They didn't know my true name that I'm now revealing to you. This is who I really am, the one who is. And the name of the Lord is tied to the power of the Lord. It's tied to God's power. In Exodus chapter 9, God says, I'm going to do some things. I'm going to show you some signs. I'm going to flex on the Egyptians. And then the whole world will know my power and my name that God's name is synonymous with his powerful acts. And God's name is related not just to his power, but to his glory, his brightness, his greatness. There's a moment where Moses says to God, God, I really, really want to see your full glory. And God says, you can't do that. It's too much. It would overwhelm you. You would die. But here's what we can do, Moses. I'm going to put you in this crack in the rock. 
I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to pass by, and you're going to hear me pronounce my name, is what God says. So the name of the Lord is who he is. It's his power. It's his glory. But it's also his dwelling place. It's where he lives. If I can dip out of the Torah for a moment to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the, the, uh, King David says, I want to build you, God. I want to build you a temple. He says, a dwelling place for your name. The name of the Lord is the Lord. It's who he is. It's his power. It's his glory. It's his dwelling place. So much so that when the priest would speak a blessing over all the people, when the the priest would use his words to build up the people of God, this is what Aaron, the priest, would say. The Lord spoke to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you should bless the Israelites. You should say to them, may the Lord bless you, and protect you. May the Lord make his his face shine on you, like smile on you, and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you shalom. And in this way, you will pronounce my name over the Israelites, and I will bless them. It's literally translated as the priest will put the name on the people. You have been named by God. He is with you. He has given you his power. He has shown you his glory. That's what is happening here. Now, if God's, if names in general are important, and if God's name is who he is and his presence and all of this importance, well, now you start to see the seriousness of profaning the name. Leviticus 22, 32, you must not profane my holy name. I must be treated as holy among the Israelites because I'm the Lord that that set you apart. You're special, you're unique, you're distinct. I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh, this is my name. And it's rooted in the 10 commandments. Exodus 20, verse seven, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Some of you in the more traditional translations you've heard do not take the Lord's name in vain. That word take is an old-fashioned King James English way of saying to bear or to carry. The, the, The really most literal translation would be don't carry the Lord's name in vain. God has put his name on you. You are carrying his name. Act like it. This has far less to do with saying the phrase, oh my God, although we could bring that into the discussion at some point, and has far more to do with the fact that you are named after God, live like it. Carry my name with some respect. Bear my name appropriately. Represent me to the nations. Now these different words we've seen here, misuse, profane, curse, I don't want to do a big word study thing, but there's some really interesting things about it. The the word that is most often translated as blaspheme is related to the word for drilling a hole or stabbing a spear. Um, it's, It's intentional and it's violent. Have you ever accidentally stabbed someone with a spear? Some of you kids are like, is this the time to tell mom and dad? Or what? Like, no. Right, This is like a violent, intentional act, okay? Now, I have messed up and drilled in the wrong place, but I knew that I had a drill in my hand. 
This idea of blaspheming, it's violent and it's intentional. It's I meant something by this. And the word for curse is related to the Hebrew word for light and not very heavy. Instead of, instead of you know, speaking well and respectfully and having a certain weightiness to it, it's ah, just light, flippant. My words were light, my words were flippant. So when the Bible is talking about blasphemy, it's talking about something that is intentional, persistent, violent, and diminishing the respect that is due the name of the Lord. It's a really serious offense, which is why it carries capital punishment as its consequence. Now, some of you are maybe already jumping ahead to Jesus in the New Testament because Jesus spoke on this as well. In Matthew chapter 12, he's speaking, he's doing all these miracles and he's doing all this stuff to glorify the Lord. And the Pharisees, these religious leaders, come up and accuse him of doing these miracles by the power of the devil. They can see the work that is happening in front of them. They can see what's being done, but they're saying, oh, this is being done by the devil. And so Jesus says, you're blaspheming. He says, look, people are going to be forgiven of all kinds of sins and blasphemies. That's good news, amen? But this blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. It is persistent, it is violent, it is willful, and it is diminishing the work that the Holy Spirit is doing through Jesus Christ and attributing it to evil. Roy Gain, who's a scholar, he he puts it this way. He says, using the power of speech against God, who created the world for the human species by speaking, is the height of ingratitude and rebellion. It is also ultimate arrogance to assume that one can engage in a verbal slugfest with the Almighty. This is an implicit claim to divine power, which is not protected by a right of free speech under the Lord's constitution. The young man saw the glory of God on display. He was in Egypt He saw the parting of the sea. He saw the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. He saw the glory of the Lord fill the tabernacle and he chose to curse the name of the Lord. The Pharisees saw the miraculous work of Jesus. They heard his powerful teaching and they chose to blaspheme the name of the Lord. Now this is where I want to turn things because rubber really hits the road. Over the course of my time as a pastor, I was trying to think back how many times this has happened, probably somewhere around a dozen times. I've had someone sitting in my office or sitting at my home with tears in their eyes and they're asking this question, have I committed blasphemy? Particularly some with a sensitive conscience, they know that they've used their words not only to speak ill of image bearers of God, but maybe even to speak ill of God himself. And their conscience is troubled and they're worried that because of Jesus' teaching and because of the seriousness of the sin in places like Leviticus, that they have now committed the unforgivable sin and will be doomed and damned to hell for all of eternity. So I don't know if that's you. It might not be you, but it might be someone that you know. So I want to offer three responses to this. Response number one, asking hard questions of God is not blasphemy. Have you ever read the Psalms? Have you ever read the book of Job? Have you ever read like the prophet Habakkuk? 
In our lives, we face trials and challenges and pains that shatter the human heart into a thousand pieces. And in that moment, there is a a, a natural human response to say, what is happening, God? What is going on? We may even be angry with God. We may even be frustrated with God. We might even be questioning, God, are you even there? But the witness of the scripture from front to back, is that God invites us to run to him with those hard questions. Now, there may be a hard-hearted attitude that sneaks in here, and that needs to be watched out for. But just asking God hard questions in and of itself is not blasphemy. We are invited to bring those things to the Lord If the witness of the psalm, just read the psalms and notice how many times David or one of the other psalmists says, Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten me? I cry out to you, but you don't even seem like you answer me. And yet, Lord, I'm still going to keep running to you. Asking hard questions of God is not blasphemy. Number two, even wavering or doubting is not blasphemy. Think of the man that, that came to Jesus and asked for his, his child to be healed. And Jesus goes, yeah. The guy goes, look, if it's, if it's possible. And the guy, Jesus goes, it's po- like, possible. All things are possible for the one who believes. And what does the, what does the guy say? He goes, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus responds with grace to him. Because that man was honest to say, yeah, I, I do, but sometimes I don't. <laughs> There's a part of me that believes and a part of me that struggles. When we get into the book of Jude here next month, one of the verses at the end of the book of Jude is, have mercy on those who waver. Have mercy on those who doubt. Again, there is a hard-hearted sort of wavering or hard-hearted sort of doubt that says, yeah, God, you better prove yourself to me. But for those of you who are followers of Jesus, are there not things you don't understand? Okay. Hmm. One of the real risks of being the kind of church that we are, a Bible church, we love theology, we love doctrine, we love studying, we love learning, we love getting to the answers. One of the risks that we run is giving off the mistaken impression that we know everything or we know more than we think, we know more than we do. There is so much I don't know. Could you please, as a show of solidarity, raise your hand if you agree with that sentence? There is so much I don't know. Ultimately, God is a mystery. What we need to know, he's revealed to us. But we can't know everything about God. Sometimes I read Leviticus as I'm preparing these teachings. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here, God? And then you come and you sit here and you're like, God, What in the world were the elders thinking to go through the book of Leviticus and you're wavering and you're doubting our sanity or whatever might be going on, right? We all have things that we don't know. We all have things we don't understand. That is not blasphemy. Number three, harming with our words. Yes, is sin, but no, it is not blasphemy. You may have even used your words in anger or frustration towards God and that may be a sin to repent of. But if your heart is convicted of that sin, it proves that you have not done the violent, persisted, hard-hearting disrespect of the Lord that is the definition of blasphemy. You may have used your words to harm image bearers of God. You and I all have, probably in the last 24 hours. And it is a sin to be repented of. And the Lord says, Jesus said, 
all kinds of sins and blasphemies can be forgiven. How good is that news? Sam Storms puts it this way. He says, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act committed only once in a moment of rage or rebellion, but it's this calloused attitude over time, a persistent defiance that hardens and calcifies the heart. Blasphemy is not just unbelief, the the sort of unbelief or rejection or doubt that is so typical in our world. This is defiance of what one knows beyond any shadow of a doubt to be true. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. Elsewhere in a sermon, I heard Sam Storms one time say, if you're concerned that you've committed blasphemy, you haven't. If your heart is still sensitive to that thought, it's that persistent, hard-hearted rejection of Jesus, which is, which is why the ministry of Jesus is so precious to us. Because Jesus came. The, 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 he showed up on the scene and he began speaking truth about God. And when he used his words, he used his words to speak truth about God in a way that people were marveling at. They said, we've heard people teach. We've never heard anyone teach like this guy. You know why? Because he was himself the word of God in human form. And as Jesus spoke truth about God, they accused him of blasphemy. They said, we're not arresting you just for stirring up you know, trouble in the region. We're arresting you because you, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. Now, if Jesus was a mere man claiming to be God, yes, that would be blasphemy. But how many of you know Jesus was no mere man? He was the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son in divine form, in human form divine and human, fully both. And as he went through the land, he spoke truth about God and he used his words to speak about the mission that the Lord had given him. And in his earthly life and ministry, not one time did he dishonor the Lord with his words or harm anyone else with his words. He only spoke life and they killed him. And as he was nailed to the cross, as he was bleeding and dying in our place because of the sins of our words, what did Jesus speak from the cross? Words of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. And the work of redemption is done and you and I can have forgiveness and eternal life because of the word of God. This is good news, friends. And all of your sinful words, either at God or at image bearers of God, can be forgiven because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And so, now we're invited to live a life of learning how to honor God's name I'm going to say four brief things and then we'll go to the Lord's table. How can I honor God's name? How can I, how can I not bear the name or carry the name of the Lord in vain? Let me offer you four simple things. Number one, learn truth about God. It always, um, it, it simultaneously makes me chuckle and cry whenever I hear people say like, well, you know, I think God is like this or I think God is like that without actually diving into the character and the nature of God as revealed in nature and as revealed in scripture the two books that God gave us. 
We don't get to just say whatever we want about God. We have to learn who God truly is. And he has not revealed everything he could to us that would melt us. We couldn't handle it. But he has given us everything we need to know. So let's dive in and study and learn about this God that we serve. Number two, ask honest questions of God. It is not honoring to God's name to play a religious game of everything's good, everything's easy, I have no problems. As you go through life and you encounter various trials and troubles and struggles, the Lord says, bring those hard questions to me. Let's talk about them. Come, let us reason together. Even Jacob, whose name is Israel, even he wrestled with God. Bring those things to God. Number three, use your words to bring life to others. I don't want to get superstitious. Some Christians can get a little bit uh, weirdo about it. But your words have incredible power. You have the opportunity today to go up to someone and use your words to really build them up and encourage them. You have the opportunity today to go talk to somebody who has yet to know Jesus and you can literally tell them the gospel. Huh, what a powerful responsibility you've been entrusted. Use your words to bring life. And then lastly, put some respect on God's name. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Praise him. Honor him. I love that hymn we were just singing, that, that when this tongue, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the glaive, like when this one is done, I'm going to have a new resurrection tongue, and for all of eternity, I'm going to be singing his power to save. So when you come to the Lord, whether in your own times of prayer, your own times of prayer. How many of you, when it's time for prayer, you just jump right in, here's the prayer request, here's the things, Lord, help me with this. How does the Lord's prayer start? What's the first thing we're supposed to pray? Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Can we just say that out loud together? Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Lord, may we honor your name as holy. In a moment, Lord, when we sing again, would our lips and tongues and breath be used to, to give you praise? In a few minutes after that, as we leave and we go out of this place, would we use our words to build others up and to bring the life-giving message of the gospel? And right now, Lord God, as we come to the table of the Lord, could we eat and drink a forgiveness that was purchased in the name of Jesus Christ. And we give him praise and thanks in all these things. Amen.